Hi, I'm George Bodarki. Cityscape won't be heard this week, so we can bring you a special presentation as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, recorded in the studios of BronxNet Television. This season's Strike Accord campaign is focused on emergency preparedness, response, and recovery. Cityscape will return next week with an interview with author Jeffrey Gurok. He'll join us to talk about his new book, Parkchester, a Bronx tale of race and ethnicity. But for now, here's our Strike Accord special. Hurricanes and blizzards can sweep in quickly without a lot of time to prepare. But when a crisis hits, there are ways to be ready for it. And thankfully, when we're caught completely off guard, there are organizations to help us pick up the pieces. Hi, I'm George Bodarki. I'm the news director of NPR affiliate station WFUV, located on the Rose Hill campus of Fordham University here in the Bronx. Each quarter, WFUV works to raise awareness of a particular issue through our Strike Accord campaign. Past campaigns have focused on everything from energy conservation to healthy aging to children in foster care. We're very pleased to be teaming up with BronxNet for our latest campaign focused on emergency preparedness, response, and recovery. With us today are two people on the front lines of helping people prepare for and recover from disasters. Allison Panisi is Director of Communications for NYC Emergency Management. Allison, hello. Hi, George. And Neil Glassman is a Team Rubicon coordinator. Team Rubicon is a remarkable organization. It utilizes the skills and experiences of military veterans to help disaster survivors and their communities. Neil, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. I want to start off talking about misconceptions. What would you say are the biggest misconceptions when it comes to emergency preparedness? Allison, let's start with you. Sure. So. A a recent survey that New York City Emergency Management conducted found that about 62% of New Yorkers feel that they are prepared for an emergency. But only about 34% said that they felt like they had a plan. So one of the big key pieces is having a plan for an emergency. So I think that's the biggest misconception is that people believe that they're prepared, but they haven't really thought out the process of what they will do, where they will go if an emergency strikes. Neil, how do you answer that question? What do you see as the misconceptions? Just building on what uh, Allison said, I think that a lot of folks uh, uh, feel they're prepared but really haven't, take ma- haven't taken action to do it. Um, I think part of it, uh, another misconception on the other side is that somehow if there is a major disaster that some agency is going to uh, stride in on a big white horse. FEMA to the rescue. FEMA to the rescue. And when that's not the case, that people have to be prepared and uh, act when uh, a disaster strikes in anticipation of the disaster and not just figure somehow it's going to be made, they're going to be made whole again after it's over. Sometimes we hear people say, well, I have homeowner's insurance, mm-hmm. I'm covered, I'm good. That's not the best thinking, though, right? Oh, certainly not. I think that it's very important for people to take the steps to make a plan. So that includes picking places where you'll meet your family or members of your household um, after an emergency happens, who you're going to contact. For example, we know that local lines get very busy, um, even during you know non-emergency times, such as New Year's. If you go to call somebody to wish them a Happy New Year, lines might be jammed up. You might be able to text them and be able to get that message through. So thinking about that and also practicing that plan um, with members of your household, going over what works and what doesn't work. So what are the kinds of things that you aim to prepare New Yorkers for specifically? So we like to say there's a reason for every season to be prepared, right? Um, And we want all New Yorkers to be ready New Yorkers. So that means being prepared where you live, where you work, where you worship. Um, So that means working together um, to make that emergency plan. So like I said before, you have to talk to those who are in your household or, you know, the members of your emergency support network. 
So where will you go if an emergency happens? Because oftentimes we can't get home. So you need to find a meeting place or select a meeting place that's near your home and also a meeting place outside of your neighborhood because oftentimes we can't get close to home. Um, in addition to that is to also have um, people that you can contact. So having people that you can stay connected with during a disaster. So I like to say have somebody local and somebody out of area. So maybe somebody outside of the five boroughs, as an example. I have a lot of uh, out-of-town family members that I can call in the event of a disaster. So I would call them and say, you know, this emergency has happened. If this person um, calls you, please let them know that I'm okay. Because sometimes it's hard to, re, uh, to reunite um, after a disaster happens, especially if we might be all over the five boroughs. And then also practicing that plan, practicing where you will go, practicing getting to those meeting places, and then coming together afterwards and doing that analysis. What works here? What can we improve on? Um, and then making those changes and even looking at that plan, reviewing it um, on, on a regular basis is very important. In the event that you are alone here, in New York City, where do you turn if you are forced out of your home during an emergency? So that's a great question. So one of the things that I like to tell people if they, you know, may not, you know, live with others um, is to create an emergency support network. So that includes working with your neighbors, working with community organizations. Um, oftentimes people will make those connections that way in their neighborhood. So you can rely on them and they can rely on you in an emergency. So you'll be able to keep in touch and also make a plan with those individuals. In the event that you have to leave your home and you must evacuate, one of the big steps that we tell people to do is stay with friends or family. If, for whatever reason, you're unable to do so and the city opens up its emergency shelter system, you would be able to go to one of those shelters throughout the five boroughs. We often hear of this idea of have a go bag ready, right? Yes. Should you have to leave your house quickly? What should be in a go bag? So a go bag should be a portable backpack or container, like a suitcase on wheels as an example. You should have um, bottles of water, um, ready-to-eat food such as granola bars and energy bars, something that doesn't require refrigeration. Copies of your important documents, I cannot stress that enough. Um, just in case you, you know, need that information, just your important identification should be included in that. Um, other things, you should have a whistle or a bell in the event that you, you know, kind of can't scream for help. It's nice to have something like that in there, too. And then also um, items that are special for you. So everybody should have a go bag, so including your pets, including your children, making um, go bags that are customized to your needs. So you could include your medication. You can include um, special medical equipment should you need that, like an asthma inhaler, as an example. Neil, you're working with people on the other side of the emergency, if you will. You're helping with response. Tell us more about Team Rubicon. Well, uh, Team Rubicon comes into a disaster once the disaster has, the situation is stabilized and it's safe for our volunteers to go in. And what we're helping uh, disaster survivors do is take the first steps to recovery from the worst day of their lives. So, for example, uh, in recent flooding situations in New Jersey, we went in and helped uh, homeowners clean up their homes. Sometimes it's very difficult because you're removing the all, you know, if the flood is, ho is high enough, you're removing all of their personal belongings, all of their memorabilia, uh, things that are important to them. But we hope that by taking these things out, we're leaving them behind with some hope. And uh, touching on a point that you said, well, I have homeowners in, in insurance. Uh, the last three disasters that we responded to, flood situations in this mm -hmm. area, were all in areas that, quote, don't flood. And no one had 
uh, uh, flood insurance. So while some recovery money might be available through insurance or possibly through the government, um, we're providing uh, at no charge to the homeowners that first step towards recovery, making the home habitable so they can start to rebuild. Something you mentioned before we went to air is the fact that sometimes people don't want to leave their homes because they're afraid after a disaster mm -hmm. their home could be looted. They want to be there to protect their homes or they want to stay maybe with their pet or whatever the situation might be. But they're actually putting themselves and first responders at risk, right? Absolutely. Um, and uh, the, uh, if, if you uh, lose your life in a disaster, it really doesn't matter what happens to your home. And I think that folks who have survived disasters before by sheltering in place uh, may develop a false sense of security. I can do that again. Um, and uh, I think that uh, it's a tough situation. You don't want to lose all of your stuff but then again, you don't want to lose yourself. And things like uh, uh, shelters, for example, and other organizations are becoming more pet friendly. Uh, that that you don't assume you can't bring your pet with you. Don't assume that there is not a place to go. Uh, find it and, uh, and, and go there because after the disaster recedes, um, you need to be healthy to respond. Allison, what do you tell people on how to best protect their pets and make sure they have a plan with pets in place? So I'm glad that you brought that up. We actually have a resource called the Ready New York My Pets Emergency Plan. So just as you would make a plan for yourself, you should make a plan for your pet or service animal. So that includes um, having information uh, recorded, such as their vaccination history, um, also keeping a photo of your pet in the event that you um, become separated from your pet during a disaster, and also making a plan for where you will go, how to evacuate with your pet should you need to, um, also where you will keep your pet, who will take care of them if you are unable to get home to them. So, for example, you may have friends or family who could take care of them, having a boarding facility or a kennel um, and just to also touch on Neil's point, um, if you are unable to, you know, take your pet to one of those places, a kennel or boarding facility, the city shelter system will allow you to bring your pet. But I strongly recommend, and the city strongly recommends, that people bring supplies to take care of them. So bringing a cage, bringing a muzzle, um, supplies for cleanup, food, things of that nature. Um, and it's also important to know that service animals are always allowed at city shelters. Well, here we are marking yet another anniversary of Superstorm Sandy, a storm that really, I think in many ways, took New York City off guard. And clearly the next day when we woke up, we're not prepared to see as much devastation that we did see here in the city. What were the lessons learned, Allison, from Superstorm Sandy? I think one of the biggest ones is the revision of our hurricane evacuation zones. So our hurricane evacuation zones at the time were zones A, B, and C, and they have now been revised to zones one through six, with zone one most likely to flood and zone six least likely. So a lot of people may not have been designated as a hurricane evacuation zone area, but now may be living in that. There are three million New Yorkers who now live in a hurricane evacuation zone. So one of the things that we did to educate the public on this was we created an, an extensive campaign called the Know Your Zone campaign. So you could visit nyc.gov forward slash know your zone. You can call 311 and you could find out whether you live or work in a hurricane evacuation zone, where your nearest emergency shelter would be. And also you can make plans on how to be prepared and understanding these different hazards, coastal storms and hurricanes, um, different types of flooding that can affect us. You were talking about that before and other resources of how to make your plan and be prepared. How is the city using technology to communicate with people when 
storms are approaching like that to alert them, hey, you know what, it's time for you to go. Mm -hmm. So the city has an official emergency communications program. It's called Notify NYC. And Notify NYC is available um, in several different formats. You can sign up online by visiting nyc.gov forward slash Notify NYC. You can call 311. You can also download the Notify NYC app through your iOS or Android device um, to receive emergency alerts um, in areas uh, that are most important to you. For example, if you live or work in the Bronx and you want to find out what's happening in that particular area, you could sign up for um, you know hyperlocal alerts for that. Or if even if you want to get city wide messages, you can actually custom tailor it um, to the emergencies that you want to know most about, even things like transportation um, uh, disruptions as an example. But Notify NYC is the key to staying informed during a disaster. We're monitoring some of the same uh, uh, satellite and other technology that that, uh, emergency managers such as the ones in New York are monitoring so that we can stay ahead of an anticipated response. So, for example, we had um, advanced reconnaissance teams uh, that were sheltering in place where uh, Hurricane Dorian was supposed to hit in the United States, and we were very fortunate that that didn't happen. But we were prepared to respond very quickly, again, using relying on that same technology and our relationships with local emergency managers. Is Superstorm Sandy a storm that Team Rubicon responded to? Yes, it was. That was sort of our coming-of-age uh, response. We were still at that time. Uh, we were founded in, uh, in 2010, so we were kind of young, still kind of cowboy-like. And uh, we went in, but because of our, our uh, military uh, uh, DNA, we were able to get organized and, uh, and respond efficiently and effectively. In fact, some of the smaller communities uh, were relying upon us to manage their, sponta- their spontaneous community volunteers because we seemed to have our act together. But after that, we uh, kind of evolved. We um, operate under the same uh, FEMA management structure that uh, 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 the city emergency management system works under, that the Red Cross works under. We do a lot more training. We've got uh, a national operations center now in Dallas where we are monitoring situations and are are poised uh, to respond. Let's talk about your military DNA, if you will. What makes a veteran uniquely positioned to help out following a disaster? It's interesting. I'm not a veteran, um, and it was the, the Team Rubicon's dual mission that, that, that appealed to me and why I became a volunteer just two years ago. Um, and uh, what we're doing is enabling the veterans to continue their, their service. And in that DNA is the ability to quickly form a team out of handful or a couple of dozen people who have never been in the same place before um, quickly become aware of the situation, uh, define the mission, and then get it done. And get it done not only efficiently, but get it done safely with everybody uh, looking uh, and watching out for each other. Uh, We're also serving the veterans in a way in that uh, a lot of the veterans are coming back uh, or have come back for even going back to the Vietnam War uh, trying to find a way to continue their service. And uh, we're providing a means for them to continue that service where the veterans uh, are uh, no longer being thought of as people who need help but are the ones who are providing help. 
How did the organization come about? It's interesting. Uh, in 2010, uh, a couple of Marines were sitting in their living rooms, kind of separate from each, each other, watching uh, the news reports out of Haiti after the earthquake. They got on the phone, they called each other, and said, let's go do something. Mm -hmm. uh, on the way, they picked up a handful of other people, both veterans and a few medical folks, uh, flew to the Dominican Republic, and somehow managed to uh, cross the border, hence the Rubicon. They crossed the Rubicon, uh, made that commitment, and uh, at that point provided uh, medical triage services to thousands of people over the course of the time that they were there. Uh, when they got home, they said, maybe we can keep doing this. So, Allison, veterans can be heroes following a disaster, but NYC Emergency Management has a hero all its own, and that is Be Ready Girl. Yes, that's Ready Girl. So Ready Girl is our emergency preparedness superhero. She just celebrated her anniversary, um, which is very exciting for us. And um, what we want to do is encourage, you know, all New Yorkers to be prepared for emergencies, but it really starts at home um, with kids. We found that um, doing outreach to the communities, especially children, they'll go home and say, you know, my, my teacher says we need to have an emergency plan. Do we have one? And they're the ones who tend to um, be the champion uh, for change um, in terms of getting their families prepared for emergencies. So yeah. Ready Girl goes Mom, out. Dad, we need to do this. Right. <laughs> so Ready Girl goes out to um, different schools. Um, she even goes out to community groups. And she educates them on how to be prepared um, and that they could be a superhero just like her. And she also has a lot of different resources. She does a really great presentation for the kids. And she even has her own comic book, which is pretty exciting. They called her Be Ready Girl, but she's Ready Girl. She's Ready Girl. Does Ready Girl have a cape? Ready Girl does have a cape. <laughs> I'll make sure we get you one. <laughs> there we go. So what about things like blizzards here in New York, which sometimes people don't see as a catastrophe. Hey, mm -hmm. we're in the Northeast, it snows. But how do we prepare for something like a blizzard? So having a basic emergency plan is always the start, but being prepared for something like a blizzard um, is actually very simple. Um, for example, when we were talking earlier about gathering your supplies, winterizing those supplies, so having extra um, you know, warm clothing in the event that you have to, you know, leave your home. Or most of the time we tell people during a blizzard or a major winter weather event to stay put or stay in place. Um, so making sure you have extra, you know, canned food and, you know, things that may not require heating um, in the event that there is some sort of a power outage. Also practicing, um, you know, safe home heating. Never use your stove or your oven to heat your home. Um, that's always a big emergency preparedness tip that we provide to people. And to stay off the roads if, um, you know, if there are, you know, the roads are inhabitable because of uh, severe weather as well. Um, if you are on the road, uh, one of the things that we recommend is having a uh, an emergency, you know, an emergency supply kit for your car. So for me, I have, you know, a, a vehicle supply kit that has, you know, reflectors and it has, um, you know, items for traction in, and other different, you know, elements that I might need in the event that, you know, I might, you know, get stuck in the car. It never hurts to have um, extra supplies for that. On the flip side of a blizzard, are excessive heat waves something that NYC Emergency Management is also concerned about? Absolutely. And I think for um, extreme heat emergencies, and it also goes for every emergency, is to make sure that you check on your neighbors, um, you know, uh, seniors, um, children, those with, um, you know, chronic medical conditions are very vulnerable to the heat. So it's important to know the signs of heat illness, make sure that you check on one another. 
um, and just be sure that you you know stay hydrated. And also, one of the other big pieces is to um, practice uh, you know energy conservation in terms of using uh, different utilities. Power outages tend to happen very often during the summer months when utility usage is at its peak. So just being mindful of that and taking steps to be prepared for uh, for heat emergencies as well. Neil, what would you say, you know, your boots are on the ground, if you will, after a disaster. What would you say are among the lessons that you would want to communicate based on what your organization sees when people aren't prepared or didn't think about, you know, these things that Allison are talking about here? Well, I think it's knowing where you are. For example, if you're in a, a, a zone one flood zone, you know you need to prepare. However, if you're living in Astoria, you don't necessarily need to prepare for a volcano because that's that's not going to happen. So be aware of what might happen um, uh, in the winter for a, for a, a blizzard. Um, but also, I think a lot of it is neighbor helping neighbor, mm-hmm. uh, getting through the crisis. Uh, we were talking before about snowstorms. We responded to uh, a uh, tremendous blizzard at the end of 2018 in Erie, Pennsylvania, and we were helping uh, elderly and disabled homeowners dig out. Um, and that's an example where uh, um, the community would be able to provide at least wellness checks. So if you're okay and it's safe for you to do so, check on your neighbors um, Mm -hmm. because they may not be okay. Um, Check on your neighbor who you've never met before because it's a time when uh, you might be able to uh, uh, encounter an elderly or disabled person who has run out of medication and doesn't have the, 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 um, the wherewithal, you know, to, to realize it's safe, you know, that there's some way to get that medication or may not have been prepared. Um, so I think community is important uh, after a disaster and uh, following instructions before the disaster. Mm-hmm. Probably a good idea to add that to your checklist, right? Go check on the neighbor down Absolutely. the hall that might not have someone. Mm-hmm. And we also have a lot of um, great volunteer programs, uh, particularly the Community Emergency Response Team program. So we have um, active volunteers that are trained um, by uh, New York City Emergency Management, um, the New York City Police Department, and the New York City Fire Department to support first responders. But one of the things that they do best is they know their neighborhoods better than anyone, and they'll check on their neighbors and they'll educate them on how to be prepared for emergencies. So when an emergency does happen, they're able to help out their communities as well. Neil, are the veterans that work with your program all volunteers? Yeah, we're well over 100,000 volunteers in the United States right now and under 200 paid employees. Um, And uh, when uh, we do respond to a uh, disaster, uh, all of our volunteers' expenses are paid for by Team Rubicon. We've uh, have some very generous donors and lots of individual small donors that are enabling us to uh, perform our mission. We don't take any government funds. Um, one of the things we do is when we serve a community, because we can document what we've done, is we can provide them with documentation on the value of those services. So that then becomes matching funds. So if disaster funds are available through the state or the federal government and the local community needs to provide in-kind services, our contribution uh, on paper becomes their contribution so that uh, the money that, uh, that money can be spent by the community uh, in some other way. But it's really uh, amazing to me how many, not just with Team Rubicon, but many other uh, disaster response and recovery organizations, people are willing to give their, their, 
time. Um, it's the phone call you get from, if I ask the boss for another day off tomorrow without pay, can you use me? Mm. That happens so frequently. And what's involved in the training? Um, our training can take place basically online with uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the minimal training to get yourself ready for deployment. Um, but we also have lots and lots of classes. Um, we have a sort of an entry class called Grab Your Go Bags that we've recently run. Uh, we had a big session at NYU. Um, and uh, lots of face-to-face -face training. Um, we are having a, uh, a sort of command and control training session this coming weekend, but also we're doing a lot of things that serve veterans. This past weekend uh, in Secaucus, we had uh, an assist uh, training, and what that is is be uh, a training to help people be more prepared uh, to respond to uh, someone who's considering suicide, which mm. is a big issue among veterans and, and first responders. So we're trying to take a 360-degree view of our volunteers and uh, provide them with uh, lots of means to, uh, to uh, give to the communities that we serve. Is there a particularly meaningful story that you would like to share with us about a veteran that has worked with your program that stands out most to you? To you? Well, uh, there's one veteran that I can think of who um, uh, was also a, a first responder and um, became uh, physically disabled. And uh, basically, in his words, not mine, Team Rubicon saved his life. It got him out of bed, and he found things he could do in Team Rubicon that uh, got him motivated and got him going. In fact, he tells me that his wife uh, yells at him because he's doing too much, where before he was mostly sitting around the house. Now he, she never, never finds him home anymore. So I think that's kind of uh, typical of the... Of the uh, motivation of a lot of the veterans who are members of, uh, of Team Rubicon. And just to keep it in perspective, we're about 70% veterans currently, 20% active and retired first responders, and 10% other. Alison, do you have a need for volunteers with NYC Emergency Management? So we're always looking for um, people to join the Community Emergency Response Team program. We actually have a training cycle that is uh, currently underway. Um, but we hold them um, all throughout the year, and people could visit nyc.gov forward slash cert or call 311. Um, you could also check out all of the other um, local disaster response organizations, as Neil mentioned. Um, we work very closely uh, with such partners as NYC Service, um, the American Red Cross, and Salvation Army. Um, we actually, uh, New York City Emergency Management and its partners um, that work in volunteer and disaster response, created a website called Help Now NYC. So in the event of a disaster, um, people know what to do, um, how to properly um, you know, affiliate with a volunteer organization, or the best ways to even donate. Um, so there are always ways for people to get involved. So we highly encourage New Yorkers to uh, do that, especially before an emergency happens. Great. Well, we're just about running out of time. I'll ask you for any final thoughts, Neil. Well, um, I, I think just going back to what we were saying earlier, have a plan, um, test the plan, uh, and use the plan when the disaster strikes. And then if a disaster does strike afterwards, uh, engage with your community, even if it's the stranger or the strange person that, whose door you wouldn't think of knocking on just to make sure that person's okay, become involved. So when you say test the plan, actually run a drill, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
Absolutely, and, and, and to your point about kids who are learning these things in school and coming home with uh, whether it's uh, you know, home fire safety kits or just new bits of information, um, kids are doing a pretty good, can do a pretty good job of teaching their parents how to, how to prepare for disasters. Mm -hmm. Allison, any final thoughts? I think it's important uh, to just wrap it up by saying that it's a whole community involvement to be prepared and be resilient. So every New Yorker can be a ready New Yorker. Um, there are many resources to uh, get prepared, to get involved, and um, to stay informed. And it's, it's important that people realize that emergency preparedness is something that they need to do um, and continue to do. Disasters start and end locally. Yes, absolutely. There you go. Well, thank you so much to both of you. And that's all the time we have for this special collaboration between BronxNet Television and WFUV, focusing on emergency preparedness, response, and recovery. I want to thank our guests, Allison Panisi. Allison is the Director of Communications for NYC Emergency Management, and Neil Glassman with Team Rubicon. You can find links to their websites and to learn more about WFUV's Strike Accord campaign at WFUV.com. .org/strikeaccord. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for being with us.